You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This is the beginning of a, of a series called um, Narratives and Images of the Gospel. What we're going to be doing uh, with this series... Franklin, you're going to get a shout-out today. Get excited, baby. Get excited. Um, we're going to start a series um, where we're going to look at different stories from the Bible um, and stories that exemplify the basic gospel in a very, very clear way. Um, today, I'm going to do the story, a story from 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Anybody familiar with the story? Oh, one of the all-time greats. If, you, if you're not familiar with it, you're going to be... A lot of people have not heard of it. I hadn't heard of it until about really... I wasn't super familiar with it until about eight years ago. And um, it, is, it is, to me, one of the greatest portraits of the gospel in the whole Bible. Um, so let me pray for us and we'll get started. All right, God, thank you for uh, loving us. Thank you for um, sending Jesus to uh, bring us into relationship with you and to establish your kingdom and... Um, Lord, uh, this has been kind of a rocky beginning. Um, pray that, pray that everything would go smoothly here. Our minds would be set on Christ. Pray that you would speak clearly through me. And, um, ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, um, I want to start out and just, just kind of with, um, a basic little overview of the gospel that's called Two Ways to Live. This comes out of the Diocese of Sydney. And, uh, I think this is very valuable. Because it takes us through the whole story, and there are a lot of good gospel presentations, but this presentation kind of takes you through the, um, the whole story of the gospel, and also it very clearly asks for um, like a proper response to the gospel. Um, and so here's how it starts. Uh, you, you've got a little sheet here that 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 um, kind of demonstrates it. And I'll just say. I'm not sure how great the pictures are in this. I'm not sure how clearly they really represent it. Um, I don't think Yago, who's the guy who did the Jesus Storybook Bible, I don't think he was asked to do the pictures, but um, but that's okay. So here's how it starts. It's kind of got, it's kind of like six chapters to take us into uh, you know representation of the gospel. First, it starts out um, with creation. Man is created um, by God. God is the king over man, the king over the world. They're in right relationship. They're in harmony. Um, and there is perfect harmony in relationship between mankind and, and mankind in the world, mankind and God um, at the beginning in creation. However, uh, mankind sins. Uh, and, and the way that sin is depicted here is that mankind decides I don't want to be. The, I don't want God to be the king. I we want to be the king. We want to be in charge. We want to be God. And so that's that's what we see happen with Adam and Eve in, in the garden in Genesis chapter three. Uh, at the, you know, it's not just that Adam and Eve. Um, it's not just the behavior that they disobey God and they eat from the tree. Really, the heart behind the behavior of Adam and Eve is that they want to be like God. They want to be independent from the Lord. They want to be in charge. They want to do, do life on their own terms. Um, you do you, me do me, um, rather than live under 
the authority and the guidance and the leadership and the kingship of God himself. And so this creates all the problems in the world. This creates death. This creates uh, hostility and friction and turmoil and alienation and cancer and all these problems that are in the world come as a result of mankind's desire to be the Lord of his and her own life. And that's all of our problem. That's our biggest problem for everyone in this room, including the person up here teaching the lesson, is that by our nature, we want to be the God of our own life. We don't want to live under God's authority. Um, We don't want to obey his law. Um, We don't want to submit our lives to him. We don't want to depend on him. We want to be um, true to ourselves. We want to be independent. We want to do our own thing. And so as a result of that, you can see in image number three, you can see the person lying down. Um, The result is death. And you see a couple of things. First thing you see is, you know, uh, and, and, and these things are going to, a lot of these things are going to flow out of God's holiness and out of God's love, kindness, and mercy. Um, but, you know, God is the king. And if you're, let's say that you're the president of a company, you're the principal of a school, you're the teacher of a classroom, um, you're the mom or the dad in a household, uh, you're the president of the United States, whatever you are, if someone is constantly trying to take your throne, someone is constantly trying to knock you out of your leadership position, Ultimately, you're going to get tired of it. Ultimately, you're going to say, no, this is, I'm not going to, your patience is going to run out. And you're going to say, no, I'm the mom or I'm the dad or I'm the teacher or I'm the coach. And like, you need to get, you need to get in your place, right? And so God and his holiness, uh, he is patient with us. But ultimately, God is, is, comes to a point where he says, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. And that, and that is death. And so, so that is a reflection of God's holiness and justice. That's a, that's a result of us wanting to be the king of our own lives. But God is also loving and kind. And God sees that us, in wanting to be this, the, you know, our own Lord and Savior, um, that we, we kill ourselves. Like we, we live inherently kind of self-destructive lives when we try to do life on our own. And so God, because of his compassionate heart, does not want to see that. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. And so that's where we go to, to square number four there. We're going to get now to kind of the good news um, on, the, on the bottom row. And that's, what, that's where Jesus comes in. G- God sends Jesus because he does not want to see us destroy ourselves. He does not want to see us die. And he sends Jesus to first live the life that we cannot live. In order to be in fellowship and relationship with God, you have to be perfect. And there's no way that we can be perfect, right? And so Jesus, as God uh, in, in the in the God in flesh, God as a person, lives a perfect life for us. So that satisfies God's holiness there, uh, that, that one need. And then Jesus also dies on the cross. He accounts for all of our sins. All of the things that could keep us from being in relationship with God, Jesus absorbs on the cross, all of our sin. Um, and so uh, so that's, that's, that's the, the first part of it, Jesus um, being our substitute, Jesus dying for our sins. Well, then when we get to five, you see that Jesus, God does not leave Jesus dead. Um, God raises Jesus from the dead, and, uh, and then Jesus rises into heaven at, at the day of ascension, and now Jesus is king. And so that original state um, where you know, God was king over man and king over the world is, is, is restored partially. And so finally, we come to the last thing, and this is where it talks about two ways to live. Um, the response to that is... Um, 
we can either live under the old way or we can live under the new way, which is Jesus' way. The response to what Jesus has done um, is to believe and repent. Some people debate on whether it's repent and believe or whether it's believe and repent. Some people say, hey, they're so intertwined that um, they're so intertwined that who knows which comes first. It's kind of an academic matter. Um, but here's, here's what we see. I, I kind of say believe and repent. That's my opinion. Um, and so here's the shift. In the old way, we are believing in our own performance to be good enough to be in relationship with God. Um, so when we talk about put your faith in Jesus, uh, that's not like intellectually like, yeah, I believe Jesus was the son of God. Like, yeah, I believe he rose from the dead. That's not what it means to believe in Jesus. What it means to believe in Jesus is you no longer trust in your performance that the life you've lived is good enough to merit being in relationship with a perfectly holy God. You're saying, I actually trust in what Jesus did and his life and his death and his resurrection. That's the shift of belief. And so, um, you know, we talk about believing in your own performance uh, with uh, credits to my, my, my uh, valued friend, Franklin Bradford. Um, Michael Bloomberg, who's the former mayor of New York City, um, gave an interview where, and I'll just read this, it's from the Washington Times, where he talks about, you know, his, his, he has done so much good in his life that they're going to throw open the gates of heaven for him and he's not going to need an interview. He says, so I'll just read the story. Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, said it's his work for gun control, along with his anti-smoking and healthy eating campaigns, that have won him God's favor and a sure spot behind the pearly gates. His exact words made in the context of discussing his smoking cessation and anti-obesity pushes, as well as his concerted crackdowns on private gun ownership, to the New York Times were this. I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Okay? And so this is, a, this is, a, this is, um, this is an example of the old way. This is basically thinking like, hey, I've, I'm, I'm a good person, right? I don't tell racist jokes. Um, you know, I, sure, I make mistakes. But generally, like, I make, I'm, I cut my checks at the end of the year. You know, I'm, I'm a good dad. I'm a good spouse, whatever. That's believing in yourself in order to be in relationship with God. So that Michael Bloomberg kind of exemplifies that there. Um, and so, like we said, the shift is believing in the performance of Jesus for acceptance before God. That's what it means to believe in Christ. And then repent in the old way, and we talked about this in the presentation, in the old way, uh, in our, we're all born wanting to be the Lord of our own life. We're all born wanting to be our own king. And so, um, and so repentance is shifting from I am the king of my own life and I follow my own direction and what I want to do and my rules and my terms Repentance is now Jesus is the Lord of my life. God is my king, and I'm following him. So becoming a Christian is believing in Christ and repenting. Now you trust in Jesus for your salvation, his performance, and Jesus is the Lord of your own life, and we live under his lordship. And so here's the thing. Let me ask you this. As we look at this image, what is so hard? If I say to you, Jesus is meant to be your king, and you need... In order to be saved, you need to obey him, you need to follow him, you need to trust in him. He needs to be the Lord of your own life. By the way, I'm not saying obedience gets you saved, but I'm saying that shift of repentance. Um, what is so hard about that? If I'm like, Jesus is the king and you need to be the servant. If you don't know, if you don't know the full gospel, if you don't know who Jesus is, if 
you don't know what Jesus has done, how, how is anyone actually going to respond if you're like, hey, this person, he's got to be your king. You've got to be the servant. Anybody want to help me out here? What are, what are some what are some what's some resistance we might pose to that idea? Trust. Trust. Can you tell me a little more about that? Um, well, if you if you don't know who Jesus is, and you you know it would, or even if you do, you know I think I can do it better. Mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of that type of life. You know, yeah. servant leadership. You know, I, I'm just. I've yeah. got a plan and I'm going to execute it and that's what the world teaches you is the way to, is the keys to the kingdom. It's you pull yourself, I mean our whole country is it's you pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you made it on your own and you know, good for you. Totally, totally. And it's kind of the feeling you have on the first day of class and you don't know anything about the teacher and you know, and you get in there and the teacher's like, you're going to do this, 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 this and this. Well, if you don't know that the teacher's good, or you don't know that the teacher's competent, or you don't know that you know the teacher has your best interest in mind, you're not really going to want to naturally get on board with what the teacher says on the on the first day of class, right? But once you figure out, oh, this teacher is a really good teacher, or this this teacher really wants me to succeed, well, then you're a lot more willing to kind of step in line, right? And so that is where we're going to go with this story today um, of Mephibosheth, is we're going to see that the king who is calling for you to submit to him, he's a really, really, really good king. Um, He's a king who loves you. He's a king who is inviting you into fellowship and friendship. And when you see that, well, then you're a lot more eager to to, to live under his guidance, to live uh, in obedience to his rules and so on and so forth. And so we're going to look at the story of Mephibosheth. And we're going to do it twice. Um, We're going to look at Mephibosheth uh, first, just the story of what David does in its context, and then we're going to relate it to the gospel and look at it at, from the, from this end of the new of the new covenant, this end of Jesus coming, living, dying, and look back at the story as a story that prepares us for the coming of Jesus. And so I'll, I'll read. Uh, this is Second Samuel chapter nine. It's in the Old Testament, and and the context is David has recently become the king of Israel. He's defeated Saul. So. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And, the, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your, your sons and your servants shall till, till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson 
may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your grandson, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was uh, Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Beautiful story. But when you get the context, it's going to get even richer. All right, so to start out here, um, to start out, you see the custom when a new king took over was for the new king to find everyone in the household of the old king and to have them all executed. He wanted to make sure that there was no one who was going to try to um, resist him, no one who was going to try to take his throne. So in the ancient Near East, uh, the custom was that, um, yeah, this was standard operating procedure. Um, And so if you're a person who was in their original reading audience, at the beginning when it says, David says, there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake, they would have been astounded. This would have cut against the grain of the normal expectation. And so when Ziba is called to David um, and he says, I am your servant, and he says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Ziba is basically expecting what you're doing here is you're asking me, is anyone left? Uh, because, uh, and I, you're asking, is anyone left? Because what, you're gonna, what you as the king are going to do is you're going to kill them all. That's, what he's, that, that's basically what Ziba is expecting. But David says, um, David says uh, that I might show them the kindness of God. Now notice, kindness of God. Not just normal kindness, but the kindness of God. David was a person um, who knew the grace of God. David was very clear. We see this from the Psalms. We see this from throughout the Bible. David, there's probably about as much text dedicated to David as anyone in the Bible except for Jesus. Um, And we see that David knew he was a sinner. He knew he did not deserve God's love and favor, but God gave it to him. That's, That's God's grace by definition. And so when David says the kindness of God, uh, that, that means something. That means grace. That means he is going to be kind and generous to somebody regardless of their performance, regardless of whether they've been faithful to him or whether they've been a good soldier or, or been, you know, been submissive, whatever. He's just going to be generous. And so uh, Ziba says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So the story, it's like such a sad story. The story of Mephibosheth is, this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 4, um, when his nanny, like his nurse, found out that King, had been, uh, king Saul had been defeated and that there would be a new king, she instantly started running with Mephibosheth to try to hide him because she knew she was in charge of this child and she expected that the new king was going to kill him. And while she's running with Mephibosheth, she drops him and he breaks both of his feet and so here's the deal. In, 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 the, you know, in the third world today, uh, if a person like, breaks an arm or a leg, they break their foot, like, if you don't live you know, in, in the developed world, then you don't have the you know, access to orthopedic surgeons or doctors who are going to properly set your bone or perform surgery so that it heals properly, right? Uh, we have a friend who... Um, 
just finished his orthopedic residency, and, and um, he is, his name is Scott Orr, and he's going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And one of his desires is to do mission work in the third world because um, the need for orthopedic surgery in the third world is extremely important because most of the people in the third, a lot of the people in the third world will say um, their jobs are, are depend upon manual labor, depend upon the ability to actually physically do things with your body, to farm or, or things of that nature. And so if you break a bone in the third world, you can be completely disabled. You can be completely unable to provide for yourself. And this was because you're, you're probably not going to be able to have your bones fixed properly and you're going to be crippled in some manner. And so, um, so with that being said, Mephibosheth, having broken both of his feet, he is not going to be able, probably not, he's not able to walk, really. He's definitely not going to be able to defend himself. Uh, and he's definitely not going to be able to provide for himself. And so, um, and so what uh, Ziba tells uh, David is that he's in the house of Makir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And so think about this. Mephibosheth has gone from being uh, the grandson of the king to now he is staying in somebody else's house. He's effectively homeless. And he also um, has gone from you know, having the security of Saul's you know, army and the security of being in the royal family to now he is in Lodabar, which is outside of Jerusalem. It's kind of a small, obscure place. And he's clearly hiding because there, he is expecting for them to find him and to kill him. And so um, when David sends out the servant to bring Mephibosheth to him, Mephibosheth hits the deck and pays homage, and he thinks this is it. He thinks he's going to be killed. And so we see this, uh, we see this you know, exclamation mark, Mephibosheth. It's like David is, is like excited to see a long-lost friend. Um, and, he says, and he says, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, don't be afraid. Why does he have to say, be, say don't be afraid? Because he is afraid. He thinks he's going to die. Um, and he says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to, all, to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, one thing about um, Hebrew narrative is that it's known for repetition. If there's repetition, it's also very, very efficient. There are no wasted words in Hebrew narrative. So you're going to notice you will eat at my table always. It's repeated three different times in this text. Um, that image. So that's going to be a very central and important part of the story. He also says, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. It's not anything that, that Mephibosheth has done, but David made a covenant with Jonathan, who was Saul's son, and he was also David's friend. And he, and he loved Jonathan, and Jonathan was a really good friend to him. And he said, hey, because, because of your dad, because of Jonathan, because of what he did, like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to look out for you, okay? Because Jonathan had died. And so you can see here the contrition and the humility when, and also, too, you know, the lowly state of Mephibosheth when he says, what is your servant that you should regard me as a dead, that you should regard me a dead dog such as I? Dog was like the lowest of the low. Um, a dog was like a cockroach or a rat in our culture. Dogs were not, it's not your golden retriever that you love and you pay, you know, $6,000 to get their ACL repaired, you know, when they, when they tear it, uh, you know, running through the neighborhood. Dogs were the bottom of the barrel in this society. Um, and not just that, but a dead dog. Like he is presumed that he is dead. And so, um, he is like, what is going on here? He is surprised. Like, who, how is it that the king, who my grandfather was awful to, tried to kill multiple times, 
had armies sent to try to kill you, and yet you're being so kind to me, right? And so, um, so David then says, hey, we're going to give you back all of your land, which David was now entitled to the land uh, because he was the new king. But he's saying all that land that was your family's, like, I'm giving it back to you. Um, and he calls Ziba and he says, hey, Ziba, your servants, which, you know, there are like over 30 servants, your servants are to take care of Mephibosheth. They're to take care of his land. And, uh, you know, because Mephibosheth can't take care of the land himself, right? And so now not only is David giving him his land, he's also dedicating all these servants and saying, hey, these are your orders. Till this land, take care of it so that Mephibosheth is taken care of. Unbelievable. And so, um, and so it says, uh, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba the king said, according to all my Lord has said, so I will do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his, the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Four times it's mentioned, actually. And then the last statement. What a weird way to end this story. Now he was lame in both his feet. End the story, right? That's so weird. Why is that relevant, right? Okay. So now we see this beautiful story from the Old Testament. We see a picture of the grace of God. But here's the thing. There's this term that you call a type, typology. And what that means is that stories from the Old Testament that paint a picture of who Jesus will be and what Jesus will do in the New Testament. And so, and so you have lots of stories in the Old Testament that are what you call types. And so on this side um, of, the, of, the, of Jesus' coming, on this side of the New Covenant, we're able to look back and see that these are types. And interesting, something that's really interesting is one of the first things that Jesus does in the Gospel of Luke after he's raised from the dead is he sits down with the disciples and it says that he goes through and he shows them, um, shows the disciples where Jesus is present in the Old Testament. Um, so this is something that Jesus himself did with the disciples post-resurrection. And so now we go back, and here's the thing. Imagine, I was just really, really kind of try to take yourself into this. Imagine being Mephibosheth, right? Imagine that being your story. You're lame in both feet. You're now homeless and poor. You're now, you know, think you're going to die. You have no way of taking care of yourself. And the king says, hey, you, come here. You're going to you're going to be a part of you're going to be a, basically a part of my family. You're going to eat at the king's table every single night. I am going to grant you all this land, I'm grant you all these servants. You're going to be wealthy. And I'm going to treat you like one of my own kids. Like can you imagine being Mephibosheth, right? Can you imagine that being your story? Well, of course. <laughs> because if you're a believer that is your story. Like that's our story. We are Mephibosheth. Except the king is not just this you know, king of Israel, it's the king of the world. It's God himself. He doesn't just have the assets and the resources of Israel. He has all the assets and all the resources of all the world and all the spiritual realm. This, this is our story. Like, we have been invited to the king's table. And so when we go through this story, when we go through this story again, we can see how this is our story, how we are Mephibosheth, right? So first, you know, Mephibosheth is lame, right? He's crippled. He can't walk. Uh, he can't take care of himself. He has no internal resources. That's us in our sin. Like we have no way, uh, we have no way to fight off death. We have no way to ingratiate ourselves to God. We have no way to, to you know, to really 
uh, take care of ourselves, whether we, regard, we know it or not, everything we have is a product of God's generosity. So we're Mephibosheth. We are lame and crippled like Mephibosheth. And then um, we are called. We are called um, to. Uh, we are called to the king's table. Uh, we are invited um, by Christ. We are invited by God to be in fellowship with Him. Um, and we see that it's not a matter of like our merit, not anything that we've done. In the story of Mephibosheth, it's, it's because of Jonathan. It's because of Jonathan. It's also because of God. Um, but for us, it's because of Jesus. That's why. That's how God the Father, the King, invites us into you know fellowship with Him. And I, I've got on the back of your little sheet here these scriptures that kind of tell us the story. We see. Um, oh, help me. Uh, Romans five, right? While we or six. Romans six. Uh, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one scarcely will die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Um, then we see that Mephibosheth is outside of, outside of Jerusalem. He's outside the city of God. He's outside the presence of God. Um, and he is hiding. And that, that's, that's us in our sin. Like we, you know, Adam and Eve, what is the first thing they do after they sin? Well, they, they go and they try to run and hide from God. And that's naturally what we do in our sin is we try to hide from God. And so, um, and so we see uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, We were distant from God and brought us near. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. So alienated, that means you are far away from God. Um, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? Um, so in the way that Mephibosheth is brought into the palace, uh, we were distant and we are brought into God's presence through Christ. Um, but now here's the key one. The key one is that repetition of eat at the king's table, eat at the king's table, eat at the king's table. You know, we're going back to that idea of do we want to live under God's authority, submitting to him, with him as our king, with him as the Lord of our life. And again, if we think about God as a domineering, cold um, dictator, we don't really want to do that. But if we see... God, in the, in the way that David is illustrated here, as this kind, merciful, generous person who wants to invite us to eat at his table, to have fellowship with us like one of his own children's, having that kind of fondness and affection for us, that's, that's now something we can really get on board with. And that's why... You know, that's why um, this is really for all of us, particularly for students. You know, when you're going through your teenage years, you're getting lots of rules. You know, you're especially getting lots of rules at church. Like, we're introducing you to things like the Bible says you cannot have premarital sex. Um, the Bible says that you're not supposed to drink underage. The Bible says that you've got to obey your parents. You've got to be respectful to your parents. Okay? Those are hard things to hear, right? Really hard things to hear. And at the same time, if you know 
that the person who ultimately is delivering them, who is God, if he is, if you know that he's kind, then you're a lot more open to obeying that, right? Uh, rules without relationship equal rebellion. Rules without relationship equal rebellion. If you are living in relationship with God and you're seeing the beauty and the goodness of Jesus more and more, your, your heart is going to change such that you are more open and a little more um, motivated to obey, right? Um, and so, so anyhow, the, the, the key thing to see here is that what you're invited into is not a set of rules, not, not a religion, not just a group of friends. What you're invited to, into is loving fellowship with God. You're invited to the king's table. That's the gospel. And so then, last thing I want to say here is, well, it's great that David has invited Mephibosheth to the table. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's great that he he's, gets to have dinner, but, you know, but what else? You know, he's got this land that he's responsible for because he now owns it. Well, David doesn't just leave him you know, to his own devices. He sends him these helpers, right? Somebody help us out here. How does this fit into our story? Who's the helper that God sends for us? That's, he sends Jesus, but in particular, the Holy Spirit. And that's the value of the Holy Spirit. And the way that you see that David now has over 30 servants, sorry, Mephibosheth now has 30 servants at his disposal to help him in life, to take care of him, to help him till the land. God has sent himself in the Holy Spirit to be our advocate, to be our helper. And I'm not saying that now, like, you know, God's a servant. The Holy Spirit's like a servant, you know, underneath our authority. That's not true. But I mean, the Holy Spirit is a helper. And he's an, he, like, I mean, Pericles means advocate, one who helps, one who, you know, one who supports. And so as we think about, you know, believing and repenting, like living in relationship with God where he is our king, we have to remember that we're not on our own. This is not a like, let's go do it, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like God is with you in the Holy Spirit. He sent you that person to support you uh, and, and, you know, and faithfully following God himself. And it's, you know, notice again that last phrase, now he was lame in both his feet. That is a very intentional statement um, by the writer of this text. Um, that it's the last word uh, stands out and that it kind of comes out of nowhere. It doesn't fall into the natural flow of the narrative. So that, that is meant to grab our attention. And it's meant to remind us, you know, Mephibosheth had this great blessing, but he was still very weak. You know, he was still not capable of taking care of himself. And that's true of us too. You know, I mean, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, you come into a relationship with God, like, we're still sinners, you know? We, um, we are still not able to take care of ourselves. And so every day is kind of like reliving the gospel. Every day is remembering who God is as seen in what Jesus has done for us, as seen in his word. It's remembering, oh, wait a minute, God, yes, God loves me. Like, he's for me. He wants to be in relationship with me. He sent his son to die for me. He is so on my side. And I need to trust him. Like, I need to live with him as the king of this day, of uh, Sunday, July the 1st. Is today July the 1st? How about that? It's today, Sunday, July the 1st. I need to remember who he is, and I need to live with him as the king of this day, every single day. Um, and so what you find is as you grow as a Christian, you find that uh, it's, it feels like you're getting weaker and weaker and weaker. In reality, the more you know who God is, the, the you're realizing how weak you've always been, and you're becoming more and more dependent on God himself. 
And so um, that is the story of Mephibosheth. As I said, phenomenal story. One of the best real-life pictures of the gospel. Um, anybody have any questions? Yes? Yeah, I don't, I can't remember. I feel like he's mentioned later. I know there's definitely like one follow up is Mephibosheth's uncle, who was like a major opponent of David, sees the kindness that David extends to Mephibosheth, and he is now like all on board. He is now, um, he's now a huge David supporter and fan, loyal to the point of death. So we do see some follow up there. Um, I, I think he's mentioned, but I don't really think he's a significant factor in any other later narrative. Yes. I was just saying, saying they already mentioned it. So the ending of narrative essentially still laying in Joseph's feet at the end. Right. Did you mention that? I was wondering, what does that, does it mean he doesn't necessarily remove the circumstances? Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, totally. Yeah, his circumstances don't change. Good, good word, Joy. There you go. He literally brings, yeah, he has to be carried to the table probably, yeah. But yeah, you're right. He does, his, I mean, his circumstances do change in some way in the sense that he's gone from, you know, outlaw to in the king's house and he's gone from I'm losing all my land to I got my land back. But you're right. As far as his feet, his, his physical circumstances not changed at all. So you're right. And, and he's, he's uh, loved and cared for in that. Anybody else? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. They're, they're from, uh, sorry. We can go through that again. Um, yeah, sorry. The first one is um, Romans five. Romans five. We were weak enemies. That's Romans five. Sorry, my bad. Um, the second one, we were distant from God. That's Ephesians chapter two. We were adopted as sons and daughters and made co-heirs with Christ. I didn't even read that one. I should. That's Romans eight. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So basically, like we are co-heirs. We, are, we enter into the same trust fund as Jesus. And then finally, God sends a helper to aid us in following him to provide for the needs of our hearts. Ah, this isn't John. I can't remember where in John. Right, yeah, the Gospel of John. That's right, Berna. John 14. Yeah, John 14. There you have it, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes? Uh, when they, um, they're going out killing all the babies, that would explain why Herod was after Jesus. And while they, while they had Jesus, he said, are you the king of the Jews? That would be where all the killing had its stem from. Going yeah, that sure. I would say, well, here's the thing. One difference, it's very, it is very similar in dynamic. One difference I would say in terms of Herod as compared to some of the, the kings yeah, of the ancient Near East was... The babies, the two-year-olds. Right, the, the slaughter of the innocents. The yeah. He couldn't get the one, so they killed everybody? Yeah, the only, only difference would be is that um, uh, Jesus was not necessarily, was not previously like a political king in Rome. Uh, or a political consul like like Herod was, right? But it's the same mentality of wanting to eliminate any threat to my to my power. That's exactly right. 
That's right. right same end result. Right up to Gethsemane. It's, a, it's the same bottom line. Totally. And, and you could even say that in that point, it's Satan. You know, Satan in terms of his authority in the world of darkness, not wanting Jesus to, to knock him off of his throne, which Jesus ultimately does. So yeah, that's good. Uh, anybody else? I'll pray for us. Thanks so much. Um, Lord, thanks. Uh, thank you so much. So this is our story. Thank you for bringing us into fellowship with you. And um, I pray that, you know, the gospel would be fresh every day, that we would not see you as cold and distant, but as, uh, but as warm and generous and kind. And um, Lord, we all, every single one of us, we want to be our king every single day and help us to repent and help us to, uh, to live under your authority. We trust you, Lord. I ask your prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.